what's up suckers it's me i'm back and we are going to talk about four adhd symptoms that generally tend to get in our way and a lot of the reason that they get into our way is because we don't tend to know that these are possibly connected to adhd so i thought it would be a great thing to retread i actually wrote about this um some time ago and I felt that it was time to talk about it some more. So before I do that, if this is your kind of thing, if you have been looking for an ADHD coach who also has ADHD, who gets that productivity is not about doing everything and being perfect all of the time, then you have found your place. Please make sure that you like and subscribe. It helps nice people find me. It helps me find nice people. And it's all about connections in this world. All about it. Kind of like the mafia, except, no, it's like the mafia. Anyway, let's go ahead and get into the first symptom right away, shall we? That first symptom is rejection-sensitive dysphoria. Now, rejection-sensitive dysphoria is exactly what it sounds like. It is an increased sensitivity to rejection, except we don't necessarily have to be rejected in order to feel rejected. And depending on who you talk to, some people will say that this is not your fault, that it is the other person's fault for being insensitive, and sometimes this is true. However, the things that can make us feel rejected also sometimes can be kind of ridiculous, if I'm being honest. And I am saying this as a person who has rejection-sensitive dysphoria and who has to deal with it quite often. So a great example would be that when I was younger, I would go to parties that I didn't particularly want to go to. Anyway, I would be standing in a group with a bunch of people and somebody in that group, when I would start talking, might talk before me or talk at the same time as me and talk over me and everybody would pay attention to that other person. This is just what happens when you get a bunch of people in a room. We're literally just a bunch of hairless apes standing around trying to act like we know what the hell we're doing. So this was not personal, but it felt personal. And it would only take something like that to suddenly make me want to leave this room of people because I suddenly felt alone and unaccepted and like I didn't belong. And stuff like that is not necessarily those people's fault. It was really not even my fault. Fault is a strong word, but it was something that was being perceived by me to be something other than it was. So rejection-sensitive dysphoria is you seeing things as rejection when they may not necessarily be rejection. And it's a tough thing to deal with. It's a hard thing to fight. And the only way that I can suggest to fight back against something like this is through mindset changes, through, well, through kind of questioning whether or not the other person actually meant anything by it. Now, I am the kind of person who usually gives people the benefit of a doubt, but I also don't believe in training people to be doormats. So am I saying that you should automatically assume that somebody who insulted you on purpose and clearly is saying or doing things that you have asked them to stop doing, that you should be giving that person the benefit of a doubt? Absolutely not. 
But what I am saying is in a situation like mine, for example, when you were at a party or just with a group of friends and you're trying to talk and people keep talking over you, fight that feeling, question that emotion that's growing in your chest that says that you are not welcome, that you are not wanted. Look for hardcore evidence against how you're feeling. That can be the fact that you were invited to this get together and that they would most likely not have invited you if they didn't like you. It could be that the person who is speaking over you is your best friend and that you know for a fact usually they are someone who tries to let you speak or that if they knew that they hurt your feelings, it would make them very upset because hopefully you have friends that actually give a shit about your feelings. And at the very, very least, if it's really starting to feel like it's too much, try to disengage from the situation for a bit to see if that quiet time, if that rest helps you to feel a little less like you don't belong, a little less alone in a crowded room. You know, excuse yourself to the bathroom and just, you know, try to spend some time in there thinking. Uh, say, excuse me, I have to go outside to go get something from my car and then go for a short walk. And, or, you know, we're adults and it's very strange that this is not something that's considered allowed, but go home. Go home if that's what makes you feel better. Do not go home if you know that you're going to hate yourself for going home later. But if you know that that is what you need, you need to be alone, you, it might be that you know, you're know you also feeling kind of tired or you're feeling kind of worn out from being around people and it makes you a lot more sensitive to anything that does not automatically feel positive, then do that, go home. But the whole point is that you are able to take that feeling of everyone hates me, I'm being rejected, nobody likes me, and you're turning it on its head and you're helping yourself to realize with the evidence around you that that is not necessarily true. And I have said this before, and I know that it is not always the easiest thing to remember, but also try to keep in mind that even if you do come to the conclusion that this other person was trying to be rude or that this other person does clearly not like you or that you do need to get new friends, as hard as that is going to be, just also try to remind yourself that somebody's opinion on you is not fact. It's opinion. It's exactly what it sounds like. And these days I feel like, I guess I'm getting into a little bit of an old man yells at cloud rant here, but bear with me. I feel like these days because of social media, a lot of us automatically assume that our comments and our opinions automatically mean something. And it's even come to the point where if you say something and someone else starts to speak and you say, I don't want to hear it, someone will say, oh, well, you're not listening to my opinion, my opinion. Like somehow saying that you have an opinion suddenly makes it so that what you're saying is so important that it's owed an audience. And that's not the case. And it's the same for if someone has an opinion on you as a person. If someone has an opinion on you as a person and it's not favorable and you realize that, it's going to hurt. It hurts people who are neurotypical. It hurts to find out that people don't like you. We're social creatures and part of that social contract is feeling like people give a shit about you. But at the same time, that opinion really in the scheme of things means nothing about who you really are and it's not going to change your reality so 
all of that to say rejection sensitive dysphoria is hard it is something that you definitely have to work through but with a little bit of work and a little bit of self-awareness and understanding of what you're actually dealing with it's possible to move past it and not let it hold you back. And actually, I'm going to date myself a little bit here. This is going to sound <laughs> super weird. But actually, one of the things that used to help me a lot were the Jimmy Eat World lyrics from the song, The Middle. And it goes, don't count yourself out yet. It's only in your head you feel left out or looked down on. Now let's go ahead and move on to symptom number two, which is object impermanence. I talk about this a lot. Uh, on this channel because object impermanence gets in the way of a lot of shit for us. But if we don't know that that's what we're dealing with, we're just going to keep wondering why we keep forgetting things and not getting things done again and again and again and again. And while there are multiple reasons, one of the biggest for a lot of the people I work with is that we don't play to that object impermanence. We don't do anything to counter that. So object impermanence, in case you don't know, is the ability to realize that something is still there even when you don't see it. And obviously, you know, you're going to know that that report is due whether it's in front of your face or not. And if you're not watching this but listening to it, I am making the most amazing faces right now. But my point being, obviously we know right? But it's really easy for us to forget that saying out of sight, out of mind is talking about object impermanence. And it doesn't just have to do with productivity. It doesn't just have to do with doing things. Object impermanence can also get in the way of relationships and friendships because there is a higher tendency within us to assume that our feelings or our closeness is dissipating simply because we haven't seen or heard from somebody in a long time. And while that's not necessarily an ADHD thing, it is very common in people with ADHD to really kind of disengage from something. I've used that word twice now, in case you're counting. But it's really easy for us to emotionally back away from something or to mentally back away from something or someone if it is not in front of our face at all times. And at least in the productivity sector, okay, uh, I'm not gonna say that I know much about relationships when it comes to that. I, I know a couple things that work for me. If you wanna know more about that, you can drop me a line and I'll try to see if maybe I could do something on that later. But at least in terms of projects and work, the number one way to fight this is to make sure that you have reminders in front of your face at all times. That means that you don't just rely on the calendar hanging in your kitchen. Even if you see it all the time, you're not in your kitchen 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You want to make sure that whatever you're relying on has at least one compliment that is going to follow you everywhere. That could be on your phone. It could be if you're the kind of person who really does like carrying around a planner or a journal everywhere you go, it could be that. But you want to ensure that you are carrying something around with you at all times that is going to mirror what is at home. Um, I usually use the term productivity ring. There might be another term for that. But I have talked about building a productivity ring and how it should have two or three different aspects to it that all work together and share information so that you are able to make sure that you have 
that information in front of you at all times so that that object impermanence does not get in the way of you doing what you want to do. Moving on, uh, number three is impulsive spending. And full disclosure, I have dealt with impulsive spending probably longer than I've dealt with fatigue. And I have dealt with fatigue for a while, but I never knew that impulsive spending was part of my ADHD. Um, even after finding out that I had ADHD last year, I didn't quite make the connection until later. And impulsive spending can be a very embarrassing thing to deal with because it's something that just doesn't necessarily denote control over oneself. And you also tend to find that you're having to admit, you know, that, that you bought a Garfield mug for no reason and you did it for $10 when that $10 could have gone towards something else and you know it. And if you're wondering how to know the difference between just buying something and impulsive spending, there are a couple of things that you can ask yourself to figure that out. Are you spending money that you don't have? Are you spending money in connection to some sort of emotional event? Are you spending money on things that you generally don't really need or don't really feel a connection to? And probably one of the biggest is once you spend that money, do you feel shame? In my situation, I did. I felt shame all the time because I consistently knew that I was spending money that I should not be spending on things that I should not be buying. And it's a hard thing to fight against for sure. But the things that I have found that have been quite helpful, both to me and to others, are uh, twofold. The first is to make sure that whatever you're going to spend your money on, that you have kind of strict rules set for yourself on what you're going to spend money on and in what time period or time span. And what I mean by that is if you, for example, are thinking of buying, I don't know, a new pair of shoes and shoes are not your hobby. It's not a thing that you collect. You just see a pair of shoes and you are thinking of buying them you can set very strict rules for yourself. And if you need accountability, you could always have someone there to help you with that accountability. But you could set very strict rules for yourself that state that you're not going to buy more than X pairs of shoes or, or X amount of clothing in a certain amount of time and that if you are interested in said clothing or said pairs of shoes, that you are going to put it in your cart and then you are going to leave it there for one to two days. And if at the end of those one to two days, you still want it as badly as you did one to two days ago, then you will spend that money. But then it has to come out of the amount that you already agreed you would spend on that particular thing. You know, budgeting. <laughs> Um, and budgeting is a pain in the ass and it's hard and it's terrible and I hate it, but it is kind of important because even if we have a hard time sticking to budgets, ADHD brains really do need guidelines and rules and a budget is a guideline and it is a rule. Is it one that we can continually wind up stepping over? Sure. But that can help us to have an idea of how far reined in we need to be. Now, what's helped me 
especially in this vein, the second thing has been to only budget my own spending. Because sometimes it's very easy, especially when you're in a uh, relationship or in a family unit or in a group, to try to put a lot of the things that you buy on everyone else and say, well, you know, yeah, sure, I bought these roller skates even though I haven't roller skated in, you know, 15, 20 years, but I'm going to take the kids roller skating. And the only way that I'm going to be able to do that is if I practice some more. So this actually isn't my personal spending. This is spending for the kids. See what I did there? Essentially what has worked for me is only keeping track of my own spending. I am a total nerd for Google Sheets. So I made a Google Sheet uh, with formulas and everything that basically keeps track of only my spending. And I set it up so that it is a thing that I do every Friday. I sit down, I look at my bank accounts, I write down what I've made versus what I've spent. And sometimes, not so much lately, but there have been times where I have looked at what my expenditures were and I have been very sad. But at the same time, it lights a fire under my ass to not make the same mistake the following month. And if you work hourly or if you know what your hourly rate is, it can also help to sometimes think of the amount of money that you have spent in terms of how many hours it would take to make up that money. So, you know, if you get paid $25 an hour and you buy a $25 box set of your favorite TV show, great. Like now you get to enjoy your favorite TV show but you have also just doomed yourself to another hour to make that up. So sometimes being able to be like, do I really care enough about this to have to work an extra hour or two hours or three hours or whatever can be extremely helpful in kind of calling that spending a little bit. And finally, our last one, I have talked about this before, uh, but I still bring this up because people still don't seem to know that this could be a symptom and that's fatigue. Fatigue is absolutely an ADHD symptom. It absolutely can be an ADHD symptom. And it's something that I wish more people knew. I did not know that. The only thing that helped me was finding it through Google. So what I would highly suggest is kind of looking into it yourself, thinking of how long you've had your fatigue and whether or not it is connected to how busy your mind is and how much you constantly seem to be thinking of doing. The fatigue that comes from ADHD is not 100% understood, but the working theory is that we get tired because our minds are constantly moving and the constant anxiety and constant movement of our minds makes us tired. That's possible. And obviously, of course, there are other reasons that you could be fatigued But I'm talking about the fact that a lot of people, a sad number of people do not know that ADHD and fatigue can go hand in hand. So if you have been dealing with other symptoms and you're thinking to yourself, yeah, but I don't move around a lot. I'm actually the kind of person who sits around a lot and I'm tired. You could be dealing with fatigue and you could be dealing with executive dysfunction. So don't assume that not running all over the place doesn't mean that you might not have ADHD. Okay, so hopefully that has been helpful to you. 
please do remember that I am here to help and you can go to the link in the description to work with me. I am happy to have you and thanks very much for watching. Drink lots of water, take good care of yourself, and I'll see you in the next video or we'll talk on the next podcast episode. Bye! Links to apps mentioned in the episode to work with me and to connect on social are all in the show notes. If this helps you and you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts, please don't forget to rate the show so that I'm found by more awesome people just like you.